Welcome to Boiling Point. A risk-taking pilot sounds like the last thing anyone would want on their flight. However, if we ever want the plane to take off, some risk-taking is necessary and even crucial. Join us as we explore the incredible world of flight psychology. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your hosts, Ina and Grief. Hello. Today we are chatting with Yasmin Ibrahim. Yasmin is a PhD candidate at UNSW in Sydney, who studies risk-taking behaviors in pilots. Welcome to the show, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. So I assume that pilots need to make a lot of decisions during a flight. How does risk-taking behaviors tie into these decisions? Um, so basically, when a pilot does their recruitment, um, you go through a lot of training and stuff. So ne- when you have like a normal flight, for example, the risk, your risk-taking appetite or the pilot's risk-taking appetite isn't really necessarily, um, I guess, tested. So when you have a flight, for example, you have a checklist for absolutely everything. You're going through ATC and stuff. When we generally see risk-taking is when there's a system failure or um, there's a problem with the aircraft, for example, that's not really covered in the emergency checklists. Um, so, yeah, um, they must see their risk appetite through recruitment and they either align that to the organization's risk or they bo- bolster it up. So, yeah. But it's mainly when things kind of go off protocol that the main risk-taking is involved, I guess? Yeah, pretty much. So, like I said, when you're in cruise, they're basically managing the systems on... And I'm talking very commercial airlines, so how you fly Sydney to Melbourne, fly Sydney to London. Um, It's very much like system maintenance, and then you're at the top of the cruise, and you're watching that, and then you're descending, and then there's a checklist for that. There's a debrief between the flight crew... Um, yeah, it's only when there is a system malfunction or some abnormal procedure or something's happened where they're like, okay, how do we um, problem solve this? Generally, they do get uh, decision trees and stuff from the airline. This is how we're going to evaluate it and whatnot. It's it's in these rare occasions where it's there's no reference. So, yeah. So it sounds like you don't really want any risk-taking, right? Like if, if you have such like everything is drawn out, I feel like, so... Maybe you don't even want any decisions from the pilot? <laughs> well, um, yeah, you don't want them to touch anything. <laughs> no, um, most, like, a lot of pilots are very, like, intelligent people and they've been doing it for a while. So um, we don't want... So the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, they've actually said we don't want impulsive risk, um, whereas calculative risk is a completely different thing. Um, and that's also what my research is looking at as well. So impulsivity obviously is you're not really thinking you're just doing it whereas calculative risk is like well we're going to make a decision um what's the best way around it so one of the best examples i have is revolution airlines flight 08 and it was in the 80s and the propeller actually sheared the bottom of the aircraft and it limited their flight controls so they had very limited controllability of the aircraft so this happened um, in Alaska. So instead of going back to Cold Bay Airport, which was closer, they decided to go further away to Anchorage, which was a major airport, and it had all the resources and a longer runway. So wow. a longer runway, it gives you more time. And this was over mountainous like terrain and stuff, and dealing with an aircraft that's not fully functioning as it should, 
and everyone survived. I think someone had like a broken ankle. That was like the worst of it. <laughs> That's a good turnout. Right? Yeah. And um, so that we consider as like calculative. Um, again, they didn't really have, they could kind of control the aircraft with the autopilot, but barely. So um, that's what you kind of want to see. Whereas to my knowledge, um, impulsivity, I've only ever seen, so the National Transport Safety Bureau, who deals with air crashes specifically in America, um, they've only stipulated once in one report that I could find that impulsivity was actually a potential factor. So... Um, it was a aircraft in 2019 crashed and unfortunately everyone on board died. It was a freighter and the NTSB actually stipulated that the pilot who was in control actually had a history of being impulsive in the simulator. Right. Um, but it's generally you don't really see impulsivity um, in pilots. So calculative risk-taking, sure, good when it's needed, but impulsive has always kind of been a no-no, Yeah. So can you talk a bit about the research you're doing to try and look at how risk-taking is involved in airline flying? Yeah, so basically my first study was a systematic review looking at how we're measuring risk um, through the research and what I found was basically it is a lot of psychometric tests. So it's very much like, what's your personality? We'll give you this and then we'll bring it back. Um, there was only like three research papers that actually put pilots in a simulator and the sim is like used for emergency procedures before you even learn to fly in an actual aircraft they put you in a sim um so basically that was the systematic review and then my first experiment was giving the pilots a go no-go flight task which is essentially like it's a balancing act sort of thing and it's really up to the pilots whether they decide they want to go or not mm. so that flight task was basically like there's a you're in Maria Airport, there is a parachutist, he's fallen out of the range and the company just wants you to go see where he's at. He's about there. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't give them an actual place to look, but also you've only got 18 minutes of fuel. So that was like the little kicker we gave <laughs> them. Um, most of them had said no. Um, but yeah, it's, that is very much like, okay, there's no pressure on you. It's not an emergency, um, but are you going to choose to go or not? Right. So yeah, that's how we're testing it right now. Sim, and then we're putting, we put an EEG, which records their brain waves to see if their baseline risk is different. So people who accepted the flight, is their baseline risk riskier than people who actually declined? And is that what you found? Um, well, we're still sort of doing the data analysis part of it. Um, what I, we kind of found was locus of control. So we gave them a bunch of psychometric scales as well is kind of, and it's seen in other research. It is kind of like the, like the predictor almost. So locus of control is the idea of, um, how can, how much control do you have of outcomes in your life? So a very high internal locus of control is like, I control what happens, um, a high external locus of control is like it's up to fate, chance, right. whatever. So what research has found that pilots who have a high internal locus of control are much more able to pick up system malfunctions earlier and they actually fly safer. Um, and this is on the basis of a couple of research papers. So we've sort of seen that a little bit, um, but we also have to understand I've had... 16 pilots so the the cohort is quite small and we have to look at it from that angle as well 
Can you also study what happened after a plane crash? Can you, I don't know, I, I think there are like black boxes that you can maybe listen yeah. to. Yeah, so generally like, I mean, it's common knowledge that like 80% of air accidents are due to pilot error. So generally when an accident happens, and aviation in general is quite good at learning from its mistakes, um, you get the black boxes. You also have the flight data recorder. That is, if we're looking at, for example, an A380, um, which is those double-decker um, planes, it's, it is like measuring all the parameters you could think of. Um, so you're getting that, you're getting the voice recorder and it's like gold because you can understand what is going through their heads, how they operating, um, within the crew. Um, so yeah, you're looking at that and then, you know, you always want people to, you don't want anyone passing away, but it does give an insight into what was going on if there are fatalities with the flight crew. Right. So, yeah. And you can identify, I guess, what was wrong in their risk taking or in their decisions? Yeah, so you can definitely see a lot of the times um, when you see, so there's this thing called authority gradient where it's looking at the captain and the first officer and how they kind of communicate with one another. So in some cultures, if you're the captain, it's very much like I'm the captain, shush, don't, the first <laughs> officer doesn't say anything. Um, but there's been accidents where you know, you you hear the voice recorder and it's like, well, the first officer was right or they were too scared to say anything right. sort of um, in that sense. So you kind of want a healthy kind of gradient there, um, but it also can go the opposite. So there was a incident in like the early 90s where the captain had actually just come back from like six years leave for like medical reasons, just got their um, pilot's license back and whatnot. They weren't too confident at a certain airport and the first officer was exaggerating their ability. So what happened was there was a shift. So the first officer then started to take control and the captain was like, oh, okay. Anyway, it ended with the plane being on an active runway in the fog, so you can't see. And it was a DC-9, so uh, a, a Boeing 717. It was a smallish aircraft. And they ended up on like an active runway they were a bit confused as to what was happening and a 727, which is a three-engine plane, um, started taking off and they didn't see them. So what happened was half of the side, one side of the plane actually, the wing clipped it and people died. The flight crew survived. The 727 had minimal damage. It was just the wing clip, but the DC-9 was absolutely wow. just from one side. Yeah. So when it's that sort of communication breakdown or um, communication that, the good times, like when there's good communication, you can really like, it works to your advantage. When it's not good communication, it can really, really hinder and make or break if there is an issue. Yeah. So what kind of, like all, with all this risk taking in mind, like how do like piloting companies at the moment, do they interview you and like try and calculate your risk? as part of the process for getting hired, hired um, and everything? It's mainly, so you have to do your bare minimum hours uh, and that would vary between organisations, commercial, private, whatever. Um, and then there is a, a bunch of te- uh, like spatial orientation tests, if you will. Um, I'm not too sure of any airline at the moment that does do psychometric testing um, for risk appetite or any kind of... Um, like any type of mental acuity, I guess, if you will. Like trying trying to quantify the risk that a person might have. Yeah. So, but you do get you do go through um, 
thorough training so everyone kind of is a little bit more uniform in how they would react if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um and i'm by no means a pilot so i don't really know the intricacies of it but yeah you get hired and then you just go through this process of um exam test simulator and you get tested i think in the major airlines don't quote me but like once a year they'll test you in the flight deck making sure you're up to their standards yeah. So you think your research might improve how they select people or pre-select people? Um, I think it will, yeah, it will highlight the need to at least focus on it just a little bit. I don't think it's ever going to cut people out. I think you just align them to the organization's risk appetite. So, you know, um, us three can go into a class and one of us might be good at maths, science and English. The other one needs a little bit of help, but vice versa. Like I might be great at maths and everyone else needs a little bit of help. So I don't think it's going to be cutting people out necessarily, but definitely aiding the process. Yeah. And does being aware of like how much risk you're taking, like in your general life, yeah, um, changes how you see risk? Um, yeah, I think like for everyone not just pilots like having that self-awareness like I I know for a fact that I am quite impulsive so knowing that about (laughs) myself um can really help but yeah um it's really like I said having that two people in the flight deck really helps with um deliberating on those sort of things and having an ear to really talk to and discuss when things go bad I heard like this great quote and I've completely forgotten who said it (laughs) but um, he he said like when there's an issue on an aircraft, the first thing you go do is grab a coffee, right? <laughs> like it's very rare. <laughs> like it's very rare that you're gonna have to immediately right. react. You've got time. Yeah, you've got time. There's a, like you have a checklist there. Like the plane will tell you what systems have failed and how to work through them a little bit. So yeah. So it seems like um, you don't only need to screen or like test the pilots, but also the whole crew. Are you looking into, like, seeing how the crew react? Not at the moment. There is um, there is research out there looking at how the crew works together. Um, but my research here is solely focusing on single pilot operations and their risk appetite. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And no. is there a difference in, um, like, how much risk you would want a pilot to have if they're, like... I don't know, a combat pilot or a private pilot? Or like, um, do you think it's all the same and everybody should have the same level? Um, I mean, like, yeah, like like I said, it's quite different. So like commercial pilots, their kind of priority is to get you there safely. Whereas a military pilot, their special missions, they're flying, they can be flying at very low levels um, using like at night where there's... You know, I think they use like night vision goggles at some points. Yeah, like it's like a whole <laughs> different safe. world, right? Um, lots more risks, lots more going on. Yeah. So, and then like again, private pilots, it, that varies as well. So, if you're a private pilot with visual flight rules, i.e., you have to be able to get your bearings from um, like looking down on the ground and stuff, that's a different type of pi- private pilot license, say, to IMC, where it's instrument meteorological conditions so basically if i'm flying in vfr it means i can see where the ground and where the sky is if you're in imc conditions you need to be using your instruments 
um, because it's cloudy mm-hmm. or it's nighttime and you don't have that frame of reference. So if, I think CASA, so the Civil Aviation Safety Authority in Australia says, if you're a VFR pilot and you fly into IMC, so you can't see anything, you have about 176 seconds before you lose control. So wow. your ears start your ears start playing around because you get spatially disorientated and you think the plane's going left, but in reality you're going right or you're not moving at all. Um, so then again, that's so if I'm a VFR, like, yeah, it's a lot of acronyms in aviation. <laughs> um, so like if you're a VFR pilot um, and it looks like it's sunset, it looks like clouds are coming in, but you really need to get to a place, that's a risk that you're taking mm. per mm-hmm. se versus an IMC uh, pilot who can fly in instrument meteorological conditions um but they're like that's okay i'll just use my instruments yeah um so yeah it it does vary there has been studies that show there is a difference between commercial and military pilots um but they're far and few between but mm-hmm. yes there is they we do see a difference between those two cohorts in terms of risk taking yes like risk propensity right and um, how like what kind of tests are they doing so is it a lot more like flight simulator stuff um, it's mainly like the psychometric scale. So like there is a study that was done in 2003, which I think used the French military and commercial pilots. And it's a scale that looked at five factors. So that was like invincibility, self-control, danger seeking, energy, and impulsivity. So it was just testing those. Um, and they said, except for impulsivity, um, all the other factors, so self-control, danger-seeking, energy, invincibi- invincibility, were higher in military pilots than commercial. Right. Um, Which is kind of what you would Yeah, you would expect, expect, maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, they have different missions. Their idea is to, I don't know, whatever, do recon or mm. come back and fly around, work stuff out, where a commercial pilot's like, I'm going to London today. Like, <laughs> yeah, so it's completely different in that sense, yeah. And how do they, like, what kind of the, is it just like, a questionnaire to kind of determine those attributes? Yeah. So, for example, the EVAR, um, I use that in my honours. So, mm-hmm. that one's a spectrum. So, it's like um, one of the questions is like, I see a dog barking, I go and pat it, run it, run away. So, it's on like a spectrum sort right. of thing. Um, when there's a yellow light, I stop, I speed up to beat it. Um, so, that's generally how it is. Right. Um, and we all know like those scales can be manipulated based on your mood, mm. like time of day, if you're hungry, like if the person is trying to work out what I'm testing. Um, and mm. then when you're talking about someone and their career or their job, they might think, oh, I, don't I better wanna... sell myself. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to be risky. So yeah. I, I'll push that down a little bit. Um, so that is one of the, I guess, the gaps in the research mm. or something that has to be highlighted a little bit when we go in looking at these psychometric scales yeah because when you're looking at the brain waves are surely like that will kind yeah. of be a, combined with the questionnaire be a more accurate yeah it's more object objective yeah. in that sense so you can't i don't think you can manipulate your brain waves like i mean you can be more rested mm. um but it's a lot harder to manipulate that than say a questionnaire right in front of you yeah. about your personality. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's all interesting. And you said that I guess all behaviors change during the day. Um, yep. Is like how is long haul flight psychology works? 
Um, like, it's even hard for me. <laughs> so basically, from my understanding, and I'm not a commercial pilot, you generally, if you do have a long-haul flight, say you are going Sydney to London, you are stopping, let's say, Sydney, Singapore, London. Um, you are stopping. There's generally another crew there. Um, from my understanding, I can be completely wrong, the crew that takes off is the crew that lands. So in between that, I think there is a crew change. Um, yeah, but keeping, not, like keeping alert, I guess you're, you're, you're managing the system. You have your, your buddy there that you're talking to and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's in terms of keeping, they're generally like, look, most commercial pilots are quite experienced in what they're doing and stuff. So they have their own routines, I guess. But um, yeah, like I said, generally, if there is an issue that pops up, it comes up on a checklist, a master warning or a caution warning goes off and they go from there. Um, and again, there's probably like an emergency checklist that happens. So, yeah. And you said like they need a constant training. Um, and we had two years where there were almost no flights. Yeah. Do you see any change in their behavior after COVID? Do they need to retrain? Yeah. So generally... Um, In Australia, and this is a massive generalization, every two years you have to go back and learn like non-technical skills. So how you guys talk to each other, fatigue, all that sort of stuff. So um, before COVID, we generally had like case by case, like pilots who had six months off, pilots who had two years off. We've never had like a massive population mm -hmm. just stop. Um, so in the 80s, there was some research that suggested when you've had a long time away from something, A lot of people, myself included, I always thought that is it was like your fine motor skills. So in terms of flying a plane, a lot of people, pilots, whoever, always think it's, oh, I'm going to be a bit rusty on the controls. It's actually not that. It's your soft skills. So it's your decision-making ability that actually is sort of like the last to come back. So you um, kind of keep your muscle memory, but you lose kind of the more general yeah, aspects of it. Yeah, so it's kind of like... Um, Say you learnt how to drive a manual car like 10 years ago and you've been driving an auto and you haven't touched a manual car, that will come back quicker than, say, not driving at all and having to make decisions quickly, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that was in the 80s. And then what we saw um, after COVID is that because there was procedural changes, none of us could be even in a, a room together, let alone putting out these classes, um, A lot of pilots, I think there was a research that was saying um, a lot of pilots, yeah, they felt like they weren't going to bring back, sorry, their fine motor skills on how they're flying was the last to come back, but it was their decision making. And the research showed that we had a lot more. Um, so the flight data monitor, obviously kind of like just monitoring the aircraft, it was showing a lot more runway excursion potentials. Um, like late 2020, 2021. So a runway excursion is basically an aircraft that may veer off the runway or over, like say you have two kilometers of runway and you go over that runway. So we're seeing a lot of that, like just like warnings. Like I don't, I don't remember a major airline in the world having a runway excursion in the last two and a half years. I could be wrong, but, um, we're seeing a lot more events happen so that be and because landing and takeoff is a very high workload for pilots it kind of like it, it kind of maps out and it kind of like it's a good example of how they may have lost some of their skills during the time yeah, off yeah like and yeah their decision making stuff and 
again, when we go back to that locus of control, because of their career stagnation, because, I mean, everyone was affected by COVID, but pilot, like basically a lot of um, airlines or companies in general, just like, we have nothing for you. Mm. So the mental aspects of that as well. Um, so yeah, we did see a little bit more issues coming back because, and it's not, it's no one's fault. It is what it is. It was a pandemic. Um, we did see a little more, I guess, hiccups, if you will. Yeah. Um, there was a, yeah, there was a few at the start, I think last year where there was, they were highlighting a few things with certain airlines, um, in Australia. So, <laughs> cause it'd be a yeah. hard, it's not really something you can practice at home in your living room unless you've got some massive flight simulator. <laughs> no, exactly. And like things change. So like you could be waiting to take off at like 10.30, but oh no, the plane in front of you has an issue and everyone's mm. held back or whatever. So yeah, it's it's very hard to sit and practice that. But yeah, mm. unless you have like a massive simulator at home. <laughs> like, but yeah. So it sounds mm. like there's a lot of different variables like to consider when talking about risk, whether it's like their experience or their time off and stuff like what kind of research are you hoping to do in the future to kind of, or what research do you think should be done in the future to try and kind of bring risk taking into the more mainstream and more consideration when talking about pilots? Um, well, that's a good question. So I think, so we're coming back from like no flying whatsoever to basically flying coming back to pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be very valuable to have it in the recruitment stage. And like I said, not to cut pilots out, but just to align them more to the company's risk appetite, mm -hmm. whether whatever that may be. Um, because like I said, a lot of aircraft incidences are because of pilot error. So minimizing that error as best as we can, I guess that would be where it would be um, I mean, I guess the most valuable. Because mm -hmm. not necessarily like even doing the research so that you can choose what pilots you want, but more so that you can kind of include it in the curriculum of training pilots so they're aware of the different yeah. variability. Because someone who's training me a pilot will be like, oh, I'm kind of impulsive. Maybe that's something I need to consider yeah. when I'm flying a plane, <laughs> yeah. which is fair enough. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think being aware of things in general mm puts um highlights a lot of things to you so um yeah i think self-awareness is always a good thing no matter who you are but in particular yeah pilots um flight cabin crew especially yeah and you mentioned like the hardships of pilots during covid but how do you study the psychology of pilots when there are no pilots and no flights <laughs> um so a lot of so my honors and um my first experiment were with student pilots um, I mean, the pilots were still around. They were just working other jobs to get If anything, by. they'd have more time <laughs> yeah, to, exactly. to come and help out. <laughs> They're more keen. They're like, yeah. Um, so UNSW does have a 737 simulator. So you can always potentially put pilots there. Um, in terms of um, getting them in for experiments, that's a lot because we have such a stringent ethics protocol and stuff like that. Um, it, it's a different type of, I guess, process. I haven't tried so it for my honors nor this experiment look i can always try for my next experiment so if there's any pilots listening <laughs> but um they, they definitely had extra time on their hands um but yeah it's generally the student pilots that are um the ones coming in and stuff because it does get complicated um with once again their schedule their roster and with the ethics surrounding it and you're dealing with 
people who are hired by an external organisation. So you don't necessarily know how that's going to land. Mm. And like I said, the ethics is so stringent, you, you can't force anyone to do something. So, yeah, yeah it was... I mean, I think with general research with people, it is quite um, difficult. So it just, it really just depends. Yeah. And so in recent re- years, we have, even for cars, we have yeah. more systems that like keep safety and like talking about automatic cars, do you yeah. see this type of future for flights? And like, we don't need pilots anymore. Good news <laughs> or bad news. Sorry. Um, so like generally what happens is... Whatever technology is in planes, we generally see in cars 20, 30 years down the track. Mm. So it's normally the aviation that kind of uh, designs, develops, and then we push it into cars. Um, uh, automation and technology is always, it's not always the best thing in the world. It does help. So, for example, there's a system on an aircraft. And once again, when I'm talking aircraft, I'm talking big commercial aircraft, 747s, 73s, Um, A380s, A330s, um, it's called the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, so TCAS. And if you see like the longitudinal development, so in the 50s and stuff when commercial aviation was just taking off, no pun intended, we can, <laughs> we can cut that out. Um, it's staying in. <laughs> you're like, I love it. Um, we were working with scene avoid so a lot of planes were just because the idea was wow the sky is huge you're not going to hit each other so it was basically we see each other and we just go the other way there was two big mid-air collisions in the 50s and 60s the grand canyon and also one over new york and that transformed to search and detect so it was a bit more proactive in how we dealt with um conflict mm-hmm. um up there and then tcas came in And what TCAS does is, it basically is, so if you have, let's say, an A380 and a 747, and they're flying at 20,000 feet together, the TCAS will give you an advisory. It'll say, like, traffic, traffic. If you got, if for whatever reason no one moves, it'll give you then a resolution. So it'll tell the A380, hey, listen, you need to climb. The TCAS are talking to one another. So the A380 is like, climb, and... The seven four is like, cool, you say that to your pilots and we'll descend. Mm-hmm. So you avoid it through that computer. Furthering that, I'm pretty sure in Europe, America, Australia, if ATC says something that goes against the TCAS, the pilots have to listen to TCAS, ah. right? Mm-hmm. So if the 747 is descending and ATC is like, no, no, you need to climb, you disregard, you listen to TCAS. So... It does take the workload off the pilot. So technology is always a good thing in that sense. But I have actually heard pilots say it's you, how you fly is completely different when you have a lot of technology and a lot of automation on board. In what sense, I guess? Um, because I think it goes from you're managing a system sort of thing um, versus, you know, just having an autopilot and it just levels the mm. plane And then you're assessing and doing everything else. Um, More again, hands-on, when, yeah. I guess, when it's not automated. Yeah, and a lot of the information is coming from the aircraft itself versus uh, they're always listening, they're always active in there. But, yeah, in that sense, I think mm-hmm. it's a bit different. Mm. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you for being uh, a guest on our show, Yasmin. Anytime. Uh, to close the, the show off, do you have any, um, any advice for, like, 
future scientist or somebody who is looking to go into science, you can keep it as broad or as like narrow as you want. Um, okay, I think I think always just keep I know this sounds really boring, but it's like keep an open mind because I went into I went into my psych degree thinking I was going to do sports psychology and ended up in aviation. So I think keeping that open mind and I mean like work in general like industries are changing so quick now so yeah just be open to a lot of things that's would be I think that's a good piece of advice yeah. just to keep your options open yeah you don't know like if someone told me when I was 17 I was going to go into aviation I would have laughed because I just <laughs> it wasn't like a thing like I thought it was cool but I never saw it as like mm-hmm. a career so yeah that's really good advice thank yeah. you for being on our show anytime thank you this was Boiling Point the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM We will be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now. See ya.